Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the 18th chapter of Acts. Begin reading in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. Hear now God's Word. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at at Centria, uh, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a a longer time with them, uh, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had launched at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia uh, in order, in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he, des- and, and when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exor- wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Acts is filled with highly dramatic scenes of miracles and mass conversions, baptisms, persecutions, imprisonments, and escapes. On the other hand, Luke includes many names and details that we might be tempted to read past as being insignificant. Nevertheless, these two are inspired by the Holy Spirit and have been infallibly preserved for God's people through the ages. In other words, those details are there for a reason. Now, in the big picture, there are broad themes and patterns which demonstrate the scope of God's redemptive work among his people. Pastor Bradley reminded me of some, this, of some of those things this week in something he was reading, and I had taken some notes when I first began working on the book of Acts, and I was trying to find the place, right place to plug this in. So I don't know if this is the right place, but it is the place I'm about to plug it in. Uh, and that is, um, uh, there are parallels between the book of Joshua and the book of Acts, uh, very strong parallels, in fact. And so I just wanted to point that out to you. So when the Holy, as the Holy Spirit's writing Scripture, we have, again, all the very precise details, names, places, dates, uh, as we're going to see today, some even kind of routine things that we wouldn't think would get mentioned in Scripture. But those are important, the details of the story, but then there's the big picture from Genesis to Revelation. And all of that is tied together, written by God himself, given to us, preserved for us. And so when we see how that works, and we, it, it's, it's glorious because it, it, it's all reaffirming that the word of God is divine. 
It's not just another book. It's not a collection of books and a collection of stories. It is one big story that God has given to us. So, for example, the book of Acts at many points, again, parallels the book of Joshua. Joshua is a type of Jesus. The names Joshua and Jesus both mean salvation. The works, God works through Joshua as he led Israel into the promised land of Cana. And Acts can, uh, relates the continuing work of Jesus as he led his people uh, into the promised land uh, that is the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts and Joshua began with God speaking to the main characters, to the people, about what to expect and what they must do. In each, and in each, a period of intense preparation of the people and the leaders to focus and ready everyone for what God was about to do through them. In each book, there is a dramatic work of God issuing in a major initial victory. Uh, you think of Pentecost and the, and the uh, conversion of the 3,000. And this launches the people into his promises and into the further work laying hold uh, and and, uh, expanding more and more upon his promises. Early and dramatic victories encourage the people of God and cause uh, their enemies to go on the alert. Early setbacks and mistakes seem to threaten the success of each of the projects, but the people look to the Lord and they are delivered. The conquest of Canaan unfolds in a series of strategic campaigns against different sectors of the land. And in the book of Acts, the gospel spreads, as Jesus said, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see that, in fact, unfolding very strategically as Paul goes in his various missionary journeys and what have you. The emphasis in Joshua is on how he and all Israel labored to gain the promised land. And in Acts, we see that all believers actively are actively involved in spreading the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Each book concludes with the work of gaining the promises, uh, of gaining the promises unfinished, thus looking forward to the further work of God on behalf of his people. So, so as you've heard me say over and over, Acts, we read in Acts is just the beginning of the story. We're still in the story. We, we are still acting out the works of Jesus. We are the body of Christ. We are still doing these things. We are still conquering the world with the gospel. Thus, if only indirectly, the New Testament points us back to the book of Joshua and encourages us to find instruction for our calling to seek the kingdom, righteousness, and glory, and the promises of God. In each book, God is the primary actor who accomplishes his promised work through his chosen and covenant people. The main difference for those of us living in the continuing story of the book of Acts, however, is that the New Testament Joshua, that is, our Lord Jesus Christ, has brought us to the final and complete rest that the Old Testament Joshua and Israel tasted but failed to achieve. So we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, 
then he would not have afterward have spoken of another day. And again, a pattern that we see over and over in the Old Testament, whether it's Moses or Joshua or David, they were always speaking of someone greater than them, always pointing to Christ. And so again, we see the the inspiration of Scripture here. These are not isolated books, isolated stories. God had this in mind all along. Nevertheless, here we are in the last part of Acts 18, and we're also given some somewhat obscure details regarding events and particular persons which the Holy Spirit thought were important for us to have and for us to learn from. Starting in Acts 18.18 through Acts 21.17, we have what is traditionally considered to be Paul's third missionary journey. In, those, in these few verses, from Acts 18.18 18 through Acts 19.1, I think that's not very many verses, Luke compresses a 1,200-mile trip from Corinth to Ephesus and back again to Ephesus. He does that in seven verses. It seems that Luke wants us to focus on Paul's ministry in the two principal cities, that is, Corinth and Ephesus, since he spent two years in Corinth and three years in Ephesus. And thus our text today reminds us that Paul still remained a good while in Corinth. We recall that God had had given a vision to Paul to tell him, you're going to be safe here. Over and over we've seen him run out of town, uh, imprisoned, escaped, uh, stoned, uh, just going from place to place to place. But now God says, I want you to stay a while. These are going to be hubs. These are going to be central to the, the further spreading of the gospel. So Paul was able to stay as long as he did in Corinth, remember, due to Gal- uh, Gallio's refusal to hear the case that was brought against Paul by the Jewish dis- uh, distractors who, who wanted him uh, charged with a fa- bringing a false god. And you remember, he says, you know what, this is a dispute among yourselves. I'm not even going to hear the case. So he throws the case out. Gallio's ruling has been seen as setting a legal, a legal precedent for other magistrates. He was, a, he was a powerful and important magistrate, and so the other judges now are not going to touch it. So this is actually opening the door. God's using this pagan judge, not self-consciously on his part, but in God's providence, to tamp down and shut down the opposition to the gospel, and that's going to enable it to spread. F.F. Bruce comments, One thing at least is certain. If Gallio had given an adverse verdict against Paul, it would have been pleaded as a precedent by Paul's opponents for the rest of his life, and a precedent established by so exalted and influential a magistrate as Gallio, a much more important personage than the uh, Politarchs of Thessalonica, would have carried great weight. The mere fact that Gallio refused to take up the case against Paul may reasonably be held to have facilitated the spread of Christianity during the last years of Claudius and the earlier years of his successor. So we need to remember that God is at work. He turns the hearts of kings. He raises up kings. He takes down kings. He is directing all of this. And Derek Thomas observed, Gallio's verdict is an example of God's providential oversight in the political realm that ensured the further advancement of the gospel. 
God is sovereign. Not just in the sphere of the church. He is sovereign in the entire universe. And so next we are told, verse 18, Then he, Paul, took leave of the brethren and sailed from Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And then in the last part of verse 18, thus the title of the sermon, he had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. Now before I address the more serious aspects of this story, another story came to my attention. came from a friend of mine, some of you know, Pastor Yost Nixon, who does missionary work from Athens. He lives in Athens. He's involved with Training Leaders International And a couple of weeks ago, he was visiting Turkey, and all of this is in the same area where Paul is on these missionary journeys with Ephesus and Corinth. And he just made the comment, uh, and it just made me smile to think about Paul getting a haircut. uh, Yost Nixon said, I went to a Turkish barber, and, uh, and Yost reported that it ruined me for life. Uh, it included uh, serious attention to detail, trimming and plucking, head, ear, nose, eyebrows, cheeks, the flaming ear treatment, the singing string hair pluck treatment, the tweezer treatment, the lengthy head and arm massage, shoulder and back rub, fingers cracked, the open pore alcohol fry, and, the, uh, and he just concluded saying, Turkish barbers are incontestably the best. Well, and by the way, it cost him $5.64 with the tip. Well, I don't know if the Apostle Paul received the full Turkish barber treatment, but it did make me smile to think about the possibility. So, Paul, in this case, getting the haircut, what are we to make of this? Why did Luke include this detail? And the more I looked at it, the more it made sense. He was recognizing the old covenant practice that could legitimately be carried over into the new covenant days, which was called the Nazarite vow. The word Nazarite is from the Hebrew word nazir, which means to consecrate. And it's derived from the Hebrew uh, root, nazar, which means to separate. So it doesn't have necessarily anything to do with Nazareth. It has to do with this idea of being separated, being set apart. As Leviticus 27 bears out, when one of God's people felt a sense of gratitude to God, they would often be moved to make a special sacrifice. And I I thought about a parallel that we might uh, might more readily relate to Uh, as believers, though we don't do it enough, I suspect, and that is fasting, a voluntary fast in which we would say, I want to devote myself to prayer. I want to devote myself to a special situation. I'm going to deny myself food for a period of time in order to focus on something that's even more important than food. Food's pretty important, but this is more important. So we would fast for a day or two days or three days, And in case of Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights. So this is similar to that kind of thing. It's a a voluntary uh, situation. And so 
we read about the, the vow in uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, which lays it out. Uh, uh, and in order for, in the order of the Nazarite, there is not only the concept of separation and consecration of an individual to God, but also the concept of ministerial service. In other words, I'm, I'm not just going to not drink wine and not cut my hair and not touch dead bodies, uh, but I'm actually, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm that, those were actually things related to the priesthood, I'm going to devote myself to ministry of a special sort. So imagine Paul's on a missionary journey. That's exactly what he's doing. And so the, there were three, three things. I alluded to them here. First, a Nazarite was a man or a woman who consecrated himself to the Lord for a time for the fulfillment of a particular vow to the Lord. And at the end of that time, he went through a prescribed ritual to mark his return to ordinary life, to say that I'm no longer under this vow. So the Nazarite was not an ascetic. ascetic. He, uh, his vow required active fulfillment of some kind of service to God. Now, bear with me. I think this is a powerful bearing on what Paul is actually doing and why he's doing it for the sake of the gospel. So first, again, this this fulfillment. Um, uh, second, excuse me, his hair was to be uncut during the time of the vow, and that would have included his beard. Normally, the hair on a man's head would have been regularly cut like we do. Third, like the high priest, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body even a near relative. As one especially dedicated to the living God, he could not have contact with death. When the time set for the vow was complete, he was required to shave his hair, to get a haircut and and, and to be shaved. This was a visible token that that the vow had run its course. After the worshiper cut his hair, it was burnt on the altar along with a sacrifice. And it wasn't a sacrifice of atonement or redemption, but rather it was a thanksgiving offering, a sacrifice of praise. <clears throat> and this was perfectly consistent with, with Paul's or with the religious culture, and it did not contradict the gospel. Because some people have said, oh, well, Paul's being contradictory. Remember, he's been arguing against uh, being under the law, against circumcision, things like that. And now here he is reverting back to trying to follow the law. Uh, MacArthur, John MacArthur notes, when he wanted to show his deep thanks for God's marvelous encouragement during the difficult times in Corinth, he naturally thought of a typically Jewish way of doing so. In Paul's day, provision was made for those away from Jerusalem at the termination of their vow to shave their heads, as Paul did, and within 30 days to present the hair at the temple. So in gratitude toward God, Paul makes a Nazarite vow and consequently didn't cut his hair and perhaps for the remainder of his ministry in Corinth. So I'm not sure how long this vow was. But at the completion of this time in Corinth, he departed and before entering the ship at Centria, cut his hair and no doubt packaged it uh, so that he could take it to Jerusalem. He then headed home to Antioch in Syria And this grateful response to the providence of God would be further used in the providence of God in the planting of a church in Ephesus. John Stott writes, Once Paul had been liberated from the attempt to be justified by the law, remember he was a Pharisee, 
His conscience was free to take part in practices which, being ceremonial or cultural, belong to the matters indifferent, perhaps on this occasion in order to conciliate the Jewish Christian leaders that he was going to see in Jerusalem. So when Paul returns to Jerusalem, we have another part of this story that's revealed in Scripture, and that is there were four men in the church who were also ending their Nazarite vows and service. So the advice given to Paul by James and the elders was that he join these four men and undertake the cost of terminating the terminating rituals in the temple. They got to purchase a, a sacrifice, and there were other expenses involved with this. So the sacrificial requirements for a completed vow were sometimes expensive, and undertaking uh, an, an expensive undertaking. Taking, and often wealthy Jews would sponsor a poor Nazarite who had completed his vow. Now the reasons for Paul participating are this. So born with that story. It, it, it seems like, okay, so what? Well, first, that many Jews had already erroneously been told that Paul was hostile to the law. They'd been told, this man hates, the, hates Moses, hates the law of Moses. Um, in Acts 21, 21, they have been informed about you, James says to Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. So Paul is being misrepresented. He's being slandered, really. Second, the fact is clearly stated of Paul by James and the elders in Acts 21-24, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Thus, for Paul to take part in such a ritual would be in keeping with his avowed principles. It would give a public disavowal to the false uh, reputation that had been promulgated by the Judaizers that Paul was an antinomian, that he was against the law. And so Paul completed, excuse me, Paul complied, and we get some insight into this thinking when he writes back to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here's what Paul says. For though I am free from all men... I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. That was Paul's objective. And so, and to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker of it with you. And just a thought occurs to me as I'm here at this moment. When we go into any group, there are many things we can't do that are like the world, for example. We shouldn't do. They're sinful. They're not holy. They're not proper. But there are many things we should do. We should observe customs that are appropriate, that are not sinful. 
We should fit in. We should blend in. That's what we, you know, we teach missionaries to do. Whatever culture, they need to study that culture. They need to know what's offensive and what's not offensive and what's going to enable them to communicate and reach people with the gospel. That's what Paul is doing here. And so Paul believed in being all things to all men, not in the sense of compromise, but in terms of a readiness to give priority to the gospel over everything else. So if this is not opposed to the gospel, and it'll help me get a hearing for the gospel, then that's what I'll do. He was unwilling to compromise, for example, in Galatians 2, uh, and he makes it clear, for example, over the issue of eating with the Gentiles, where he rebukes Peter, the law could not be used as a means of justification, and he was uncompromising on this point and on others. No dietary laws could thus keep him from meeting Gentiles on their level, but this does not mean that he despised those laws. Again, there were four Christians who were ending their specific vow and service, and Paul not only financed the ritual, he joined them in terminating his own specific time of service and vow. His missionary journey had been in part or whole, or the whole time part of that avowed service. And so he returns to Jerusalem, to James and the elders, uh, and he was to report not as a subject but as a co-worker, as a fellow apostle on his discharge of, of those particular vows and duties that he had fulfilled on his missionary journey. Remember, he had been sent out on this mission. And so his missionary journey uh, had been part of this. And so this faithfulness to the law and to his role as a Nazarite is noted and commended by James and the elders. The only difference introduced is thus. Paul was terminating this period of avowed service before the church. He was asked to do the same in the temple and with an observance of the temple forms and rituals exactly as the other four Christians were doing. And he complied because he saw his mission to Gentiles as a fulfillment of the meaning of the Nazarite role in its best sense, that is, devoted ministry to God. More notable is the fact that the temple priest, this is another important fact here that Luke gives us, who certainly knew who Paul was, made no objection as he entered the temple, and for almost a week he faithfully observes this ritual. For Paul, all the temple represented... And all the Nazarite vows stood for had their true fulfillments in Christ and in Paul's own ministry as an apostle. 1 Corinthians 2.2, he declares, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The word translated determined is krino, which means separated or to separate. Paul had separated himself dedicated himself as a Christian Nazarite to one purpose, and that is the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, the reason given for the apostles' refusal to stay in Ephesus is the coming of the Passover, Acts 18.21. I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. So according to this view, Paul would be in a hurry if it's already spring. And so he took, he took his leave, promising to return. He said, I'll return to you again, God willing. 
However, this was not a direct flight. He had several layovers in order to continue his missionary work. Paul apparently never heard of the 40-hour work week. This man never let up. He was called by God, and he loved his work. And so I'm going to chase a rabbit here for a moment. Paul chases rabbits a lot when he writes. And so I'm going to follow his example as a pastor. Allow me to do this. God blesses godly labor. He called you to labor six out of every seven days. He's given you gifts. He's given you a brain. He's given you a body. He's given you skills, which you must develop through education, through experience, and through diligence. He has given you opportunities, which you must pursue. And He has given you 24 hours a day, which you are to spend wisely. So, men especially, but I know this is true for our ladies too, but I want to especially charge men and young men, you ought to go to bed tired. You might need two jobs. Productive men are never lazy, and lazy men are never productive. Like the apostle, such men come to love their work. That's a sign of maturity and adulthood. I used to tell my son, young men work to play, and grown men find pleasure in their work. That's how you know you're a grown-up. I remember Aaron calling me in his mid-twenties one day, and he said, Dad, I think I'm a grown-up. I said, why? He said, I love my work. Great. Now, back to our story. Verses 22 and 23. And when he had landed in Centuria and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch, and after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order in order, strengthening all the disciples. In, it's in Ephesus where we're introduced to the gifted and educated man named Apollos. He's described as a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures. We should notice that the work of the church is not limited to the apostles. Paul had not met Apollos at this time. We have no indication that Paulus had met any of the other apostles. At this point, the churches are springing up all over the place. God is raising up teachers of the Bible who are studying His Word. But remember, the early church had many limitations. They didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have books. They didn't have recorded sermons or podcasts. They had travel and communication limitations. Therefore, there were doctrinal, they were doctrinally uh, underdeveloped at many points. Immature, if you will. Untaught. And so now, today, for example, and for some years, we have an entire field of study known as historical theology, which traces the development of various doctrines of Scripture as well as the canonization of Scripture. We have a New Testament. So we can look at various controversies in the church that the church focused on and addressed and spoke to in the councils and so forth. They didn't have that. 
Thus, in these early days, Apollos knew only about the baptism of John, verse 25. It's not clear whether he knew this before coming to Ephesus or whether he had picked it up from the Ephesian believers, who obviously were the same persuasion because we read about it in the first part of chapter 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And they said to him, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now these men were about twelve in all. And so it's clear that Apollos was a true believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, even though his knowledge of Christian essentials was incomplete. Priscilla and Aquila first heard Apollos speak in the synagogue in Ephesus during Paul's absence, and as they listened, they detected some significant gaps in his understanding. And we're told that Priscilla and Aquila, rather than embarrassing him in public, took him aside perhaps to their home and, quote, explain to him the way of God more accurately. They equipped him for a work that would later take him to Corinth. Their generous hospitality and encouragement ensured that the church was better served. Now, there are a couple of important lessons we should notice here. First, It has to do with the place of Priscilla here, who is mentioned first in this text. A woman is not called on to be subject to every man. A woman is not called on to be subject to every man. Ephesians 5, 22 and 24 tells us that she is to be subject to her husband. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So Priscilla uh, could teach Apollos, who's not her husband, and she did this privately, not in public. Second, Paul had no hesitancy uh, when it came to expressing his gratitude for the roles that women played in his own ministry. So let me just give you a few examples. Philippians 4, 2 and 3. I implore Eudia and I uh, implore uh, Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. In Romans 16, there are a number of women mentioned. He praised Mary, who labored much for us, Junia, my countryman and my fellow prisoner, Tryphena, Tryphosa, I don't know if they were sisters, and Persis, quote, who labored much in the Lord. Paul also commended women for teaching children. 2 Timothy 1.5, Eunice and Lois, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Note 
some of you saw the email from Aaron Landrum uh, yesterday asking for prayer, and I just grabbed that and pasted it in here because I thought it was a great reminder of this kind of thing. Aaron said um, she asked for prayer for Kathleen Davis, who is a faithful Christian, mother of six, grandmother of 53, great-grandmother of 16. Her impact on me is great. Her VBS teachings brought alive the Bible to me in a way that made faith much more tangible. I can still vividly recall the joy her teaching brought me these 36 years later. Paul also urged older women in Titus 2, 3, and 4 to instruct the younger women. None of this suggests that Luke is talking about some public office held by Priscilla. He is simply making the observation that she was a godly, educated woman who had a clear grasp of the gospel and desired that Apollos come to a similar understanding of it. I know many men, including this one, who has much to learn from the godly women in our lives. That's an understatement. In fact, every Every great man I know looks up to his wife. And to many other women in his life. Because these women are gifts from God. And so we should remember also by the end of Paul's time in Ephesus. This is important. Priscilla had already been sitting under the apostles' ministry for five years. That's why she's able to instruct Apollos. Third, when Paul arrived back in Ephesus, one of the first things he did was he wrote a letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and he closes that letter with these words, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Remember, they were co-workers with Paul. They were tent makers. Uh, that's how he got to know them initially. But, and now we read that they had opened their homes so that the church could meet there on a regular basis. Later, when he writes his letter to Rome from Ephesus, toward the end of the three-year stay in that city, he mentions that Priscilla and Aquila. He mentions Priscilla and Aquila again in Romans 16:4. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their own necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles thank Priscilla and Aquila. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So Apollos is now sent to Corinth with the blessing and commendation of the Ephesian believers where he turned out to be a most effective preacher and evangelist. Acts 18, 27-28, And when he desired to cross into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, that's what Jesus, we started this whole series in Luke 24, when Jesus showed his disciples on the road to Emmaus how all of the scriptures 
the Old Testament scriptures spoke of him. And now we have Apollos doing the exact same thing here at Ephesus. That was what he was good at. And so we see how it was that Paul could write to the Corinthians and say, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. God is taking all kinds of people like you, like me. He's doing all kinds of things and he's bringing it together to accomplish his purpose. We're in this story. This is an ongoing story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the faithful saints who have gone before us guarding the deposit of the gospel that we might that it might be delivered to us 16 ounces to the pound. As Christian songwriter Stephen Green wrote a song titled Find Us Faithful, the lyrics are a prayer put to music. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Clearly, in the Apostle Paul, we see a life dedicated and consecrated to God. We would say that he was sold out to Christ. Apparently, this was true of Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos as well. Everyone and everything, everything else came after Jesus Christ. There was an influential pastor uh, during my late teen years. Uh, It was a minister named Leonard Ravenhill. And uh, Marinell and I got to hear him preach in Marshall, Texas, around 1975, uh, and I had read his book uh, titled Sodom Had No Bibles. And he asked this question, one that's still pertinent today, and I ask you this morning. Who or what takes priority over God in our lives? We come to the Lord's table to renew covenant with him. But this is is not just a theological or liturgical jargon to make us feel like we're doing something. This table is a call for us to actually do something. That is, to believe God and to commit our lives to Him and to say in our hearts, in your heart, Jesus is Lord. He's the boss of me. This is the starting place for our true usefulness in his kingdom. Another minister and Englishman from the late 1800s, F.B. Meyer, put it this way. Jesus Christ has, has bought us with his blood, but alas, he has not had his money's worth. He paid for all. And he has gotten but a fragment of our energy, time, and earnings. By an act of consecration, let us ask him to forgive the robbery of the past. And let us profess our desire to be henceforth utterly and only for him. His slaves, owning no master 
owing no master other than himself. Amen. Blessed are you, O Father, to you belongs all praise and glory. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. We are your people and we desire to serve you forever. We are delighted to claim your name and worship and adore you. We declare with the psalmist, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will, I will walk within my house and with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the works of all those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall, shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Lord, bless our time on the streets of this city today as we bear witness to your great gift of life. Be at work in our hearts and minds of those who drive by and bless this Lord's Day, we pray. May we learn how to delight and rest in you. Bless our feast and our fellowship. For blessed are you, O Father, whom we serve in your Son, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be glory forevermore. Amen.